World leaders are recklessly fear-mongering and promoting doomsday scenarios when it comes to climate change. Meanwhile, they are ignoring the real issues that affect real people around the world. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi everyone, thank you so much for tuning into The Candace Malcolm Show. I hope you are enjoying our daily version of The Candace Malcolm Show. We've been doing it every day since the election and we like doing it so much during the election that we have continued doing that. It gives us opportunity to jump into all of the issues of the day and to really dissect all of the various issues and problems, both when it comes to Canadian politics, as well as the Canadian media, as well as the culture here in Canada. So it is a lot of fun. Right now, all the world leaders are gathered in Scotland. They are at COP26. Which is the United Nations conference to look into the environment to study uh, what's going on with climate change. But really, what we just see is a lot of fear mongering, a lot of over the top doomsday uh, scenarios that really just create a lot of fear and anxiety around the world. So, we're going to delve into that. First, if you like the Candace Malcolm show, if you're watching over on YouTube, don't forget to like this video, leave us a comment, subscribe to the True North show, and don't forget to hit that little red notification bell. And so, you will never miss an episode if you're watching over on. Facebook, leave us a comment, share this video with your friends, like this video, and don't forget to like our True North page. Finally, if you're listening to this podcast over on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, don't forget to subscribe to The Candace Welcome Show. And if you are enjoying the content, if you like the show, please, please leave us a five-star review. All right, today I am joined by my friend, Anthony Fury. Anthony is the editor over at the Toronto Sun, and he sometimes contributes here at True North as well. Anthony, thank you so much for joining the show. Good to be here. Okay, so I want to first talk a little bit about this whole extravaganza going on in Scotland right now with COP26. So Justin Trudeau has spent the last couple of days on the world stage, virtue signaling, lecturing everybody about climate change, even at the G20 meeting. You know, they, they, they had the G20 meeting in Rome, and then the next day they were all flying to Scotland. So you'd think the G20 meeting, they would focus on, you know, economic issues, world finances, global financial stability, uh, the looming threat of inflation and hyperinflation. But instead, Trudeau said that his top uh, priority at the G20 meeting was climate change, even though the very next day he had this whole 10-day conference dedicated entirely to climate change. So why do you think Justin Trudeau is so fixated on climate change? And do you think that he is aware of all the other sort of pending uh, economic uh, crises that are happening in Canada and around the world? Well, one thing I've come to learn about Justin Trudeau, he's not a prime minister who happens to also have a great interest in green issues. He's an environmental activist who just happens to be prime minister. And I think that's been driven home more so by the fact that Stephen Guilbeault has been made environment minister in Canada. And, you know, whenever Trudeau is giving some sort of speech, whether it's just out on the campaign or, or a formal speech like the throne speech or, or something adjacent to that, he'll say the things we need, the direction we need Canada to head in. And he'll use these buzzwords, you know, fair, more equitable, whatever phrases he likes. But usually the first word is always greener. That's in everything when he does the tally of the future of Canada or what our, t- what our key priorities are. So this is just the, the way the guy rolls. This is like the thing that he thinks about when he goes to bed at night, when he wakes up in the morning. And as I did see a funny tweet, uh, someone talking about what's going on at COP26. And they're like, hold on a second. Isn't this just like one of those academic conferences uh, where you go once a year and you see the same people and you all talk about the same things? It's just an opportunity to like gather and, and have drinks. And I have to chuckle because... You know, in every sort of realm, that person, I guess, referenced their academic specialty. But, you know, I know what it's like. There's these annual conferences that I go to and I I only see people really once a year. 
uh, there. Maybe they live in Vancouver, Calgary, and I get to meet them once or twice at these events. And I kind of thought, thinking of the Trudeau COP26, and it's like, oh, how cute. This isn't actually a serious event. This is just like, you know, bring the gang back together, you know, have some beers and so forth. Let's see our old friends in the like international eco circuit. And they say all these things, Trudeau's saying this thing about phasing up the oil stands or whatever. And I'm kind of like, let's just stop taking them seriously. Like, I don't take the Paris deal uh, climate agreements too seriously. I know a lot of people do. I know the government acts like, uh, acts like these voluntary targets that we have created ourselves, that it's like a gun to our head that we have to do ASAP. But I'm just kind of like, I think this is just a lark for these guys. This is their their social circuit. They've just fallen into it. They haven't matured out of it. And, you know, let them have their fun and, and, and let's not take it seriously. So I, I totally agree that that like with the idea of what what it's like for them. Uh, the, the only problem, Anthony, is that unlike, you know, the kind of conferences that we go to or unlike the, the, the you know, the chumminess that Justin Trudeau may crave, uh, the reality is that these governments are going to be signing really heavy handed um, rule laws and rules at this at this conference. These are the have, people who run the world. Yeah, these are the people. And, and it will have devastating impacts on everyday people, on Canadians. We already saw that Trudeau has formally pledged to a cap, a hard cap cap on oil and gas and, and that, you know, that will have, uh, you know, an un, un, unbelievable effect on the livelihoods of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of Canadians um, because of that. So, so Trudeau acts like this, like, you know, it's, it's, it's a party for him. And, and that's sort of the, the idea that we see coming back home. Uh, unfortunately, you know, they also have a lot of power, which is pretty, uh, pretty, pretty devastating. Uh, what, so what, what did you think about that uh, hard cap to Canada's oil and gas? It's crazy. Yeah. It's not necessary. Uh, look, when I look at what's going on in, in renewable energy in the green sector, there's a whole lot of big companies, serious companies, uh, very you know credentialed individuals who are putting a lot of their own money. They're putting R&D into going in this new direction. Uh, they're getting venture capital and so forth. I'm like, that's cool. I'm all in support of innovation and human industriousness. And, and I think it's clear there's some sort of green revolution on the horizon and it's going to happen. And I think it's going to happen uh, in this kind of natural segue that happens holistically with the economy. Whatever the government does is just going to actually get in the way of that. I mean, I know an example of a manufacturing firm in the east end of Toronto uh, that they've come up with this new process. I won't bore you with the details, but it's 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 actually kind of like a green and viral thing. Uh, they're doing it both because they found it just sort of saves them on, on outputs and inputs and so forth. It's just more efficient. It happens to be environmentally friendly as well. It saves the money. They're going in that direction. Uh, but because of the Ontario government bringing in uh, all of these green energy policies that have ramped up the cost for manufacturing, it's putting them out of, out of business. And because they're not a company that's like with the in crowd over at COP26, they're not giving the government handouts. So here you have a company that's doing uh, some pretty cool enviro stuff that is, is benefiting the environment. And they're actually getting screwed over by green energy policies. So, I mean, as I say, this stuff is happening organically anyway. It's extremely just arrogant and incorrect of the government to think that they can get in front of that, that they can harness it, uh, that they know it better than the people who are actually doing it on the ground. So we just need to step away from it all. Like I said, the Paris deal, uh, I don't think we particularly need to be in it. I, I mean, I wish I liken the Paris deal to when you see uh, these various presentations, say at City Hall, they say, Toronto right now, they say we, zero vision. That's the thing they're doing at Toronto. Zero vision means zero pedestrian deaths because there's been too many pedestrian deaths. I obviously support that, but when they say it, it's an aspirational goal. They say zero homelessness, for instance. I mean, there's obviously never gonna be a time when there's zero homelessness, but I have no problem with the politician saying, we commit to zero homelessness because it's, it's an aspirational goal. 
And we all kind of know that. But when Trudeau is actually saying zero emissions or what have you, he doesn't realize that that's an aspirational goal. He takes himself too seriously. So you're totally right that these are the people controlling the world and our lives. So me saying laugh them off, it's not that easy. But I think laughing them off kind of maybe helps us get to that more uh, balanced perspective that we need to be at. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I have much more faith in the sort of Elon Musks of the world, the actual people totally. who are you know, brilliant in their field, innovators, very, very uh, driven towards a goal, uh, almost singularly focused, uh, versus someone like Justin Trudeau, who I agree that it's like the number one issue that he talks about and cares about, but it, it still strikes me, Anthony, as so inauthentic. When he's out there talking about it, I don't actually think he cares about the issue. I mean, I, I just think that Justin Trudeau happens to be one of the most insincere people out there. So I think he loves to talk about it. He thinks that it's trendy like remember a couple years ago we met with Greta and it was so awkward because she was lecturing him and he was just kind of there for the photo op and he was really proud of himself for being so cool that this like angry teenage environmentalist would even sit with him and it was just it was, it was kind of sad but I, I, I think that Trudeau really puts it on and really just likes to be the virtue signaler he wants to be known as the world's biggest feminist as the most sort of eco green leader uh, but really he doesn't even put his money where his mouth is because Canada doesn't even meet its targets we're not even on track to meet Paris. We uh, missed our 2020 emissions despite the global uh, lockdown. So uh, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't trust or believe anything Trudeau says, but it's not just Justin Trudeau, Anthony. Uh, we saw Boris Johnson describing global warming as a doomsday device uh, to, that, that, that will what, end humanity. Uh, the United Nations uh, Secretary General said that uh, humans are digging our own graves. So what, what do you think about this over-the-top rhetoric that's really just designed to sort of like cripple us, um, instill fear? You know, they, they tried to persuade us. It didn't really work. So now they're like, okay, let's just try to like promote fear and anxiety it's having a really big impact as we know on little kids that are now taught in school that the world's going to end because of all of our activity uh really really kind of reckless way of talking about it what what, what do you think about this over-the-top rhetoric well yeah you're right particularly in the school system and it's happening there and it's really alarming because i actually saw one report by a, a psychologist association a couple of years ago talking about how climate change anxiety is actually a real thing. So children are having uh, mental health challenges because of all this stuff they're hearing, staying awake at night and you know thinking they're going to die, uh, whatever timeline Greta gave them in the next five years or something. So uh, lots of challenges with the education system and parents need to get involved. And, and that's one of those things uh, that they need to fight back against. Another thing on the, the rhetoric, I don't know if you saw this, one of the CBC executive editors put out a post the other week saying, guys, big news, got to tell you, editorial, editorial changes coming to the CBC. We're finally going to start talking about climate change. And, like, what? <laughs> and he posted this just the other week. And I read this article. I'm like, man, this is something. He's like, for too long, we have downplayed the issue. We've ignored the issue of climate. CBC reporting is finally going to go all in on, well, it's not climate change, of course. I think it was, maybe the climate crisis was the phrase they used, perhaps climate apocalypse. I'm not sure what, what new word they used. And it was quite something, like this idea, finally, we're going to get serious on it. And there's such a, an accelerationist uh, attitude to it. I mean, Trudeau as well, we're talking about this long frame issue. And then almost every year now, he has to up the ante so much. And it's funny to, to see CBC basically do the same. You know, Now we're going to talk about climate change crazier than ever. And I, I think it's going to backfire. Who knows? Who knows the direction public opinion is going to take on it? But uh, I think you can really go overboard with this stuff, particularly now that we definitely have a crisis of cost of living going in in Canada that uh, 
while there's many different factors in play at it, uh, green energy policies have certainly exacerbated cost of living challenges in Canada. That's a really good point. I, I can't imagine having less self-awareness than the uh, editors and the big, the head honchos over at the CBC. It's like they, they just have no idea how they're perceived. And I, again, you know, this whole idea that, that this is a um, it's a crisis, it's an ongoing crisis. We heard Trudeau talk about this a lot, the, the dual crises of COVID and climate. It's like they just love being in a crisis scenario. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember like four years ago when it was the left that was constantly criticizing and critiquing and like screaming at the right for saying you guys are reckless, you're promoting fear-mongering about issues like terrorism and immigration. Um, and then here we are where, where the, that's just like the regular thing that they do is promote fear, um, anxiety. I want to switch a little bit over to COVID though, because that is the other area where we see uh, a lot of fear-mongering, a lot of misinformation. You know, they, they, they target kids with climate alarmism. Now they're starting to target kids with this idea that there needs to be forced vaccination for little kids age five to 11. Uh, you have a couple kids in that age group. Uh, I wrote a column uh, in the Toronto Sun over the weekend uh, talking about how little this group is impacted by COVID, how how few cases there, uh, despite how they had the most number of cases, well, under 20 has the num- most number of cases in Canada, uh, recorded cases. So, so kids are contracting COVID, uh, but they're not getting sick. They're not getting hospitalized. And so few are dying of COVID um, that it's barely even, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's less than a statistical um, error. So, so, so why is it that we're now focused so much on, on vaccinating a group of people that have no threat of COVID? Yeah, I spoke to the president and CEO of SickKids Hospital earlier last year, and he said that if there can be a silver lining to this pandemic, to COVID-19, if there is such a thing, it would be that thankfully we've learned that COVID-19 does not hit kids hard really at all. Uh, there was a worry initially that this would be something that hits kids very hard, and we've learned that that's not the case. And a number of very prominent pediatricians have said to me flat out that COVID-19 is less severe than influenza in children. Uh, So a lot of the debate we're having right now is whether or not it's ethical to to lock children down, to deny them of their education rights, to deny them of activities and so forth, and also to, to say that they must get this vaccine to protect other age cohorts. And that's quite a debate going on right now because traditionally that's not a thing that really happens in, in medical ethics and discussions of public health. I, I, I seem to recall that the rule in the Titanic was not, okay, children off last so we can get the, you know, the strapping middle-aged men on the, on the rescue boats first, yet that seems to be the attitude that we're taking with COVID. So it's very frustrating. I do think the conversation about the 5 to 11 vaccines has had a lot more nuanced approach uh, than previous um, chapters of this discussion. A little bit in Canada, Canada has always had a very kind of regressive and cloistered conversation. I think we're we're pretty ignorant of what goes on in the rest of the world. But I think if you look to the New York Times, the Washington Post, Newsweek Magazine, just pretty much name every major publication in the US, uh, they are having much more nuanced discussions of five to 11. Uh, There'll be articles with the headlines, do teenagers even really need to get the vaccine? That kind of stuff, uh, which which would be considered a a major no-go, I think, for a lot of Canadians, or at least just out of their frame of reference. They're not used to seeing that conversation in our media landscape or, or political landscape. Yeah, I, w- I was surprised when I just went and looked at the numbers myself because 
you know, judging by the way that I, I see, like you're saying, you know, there's not a lot of nuance in the media. So judging by the way that I see the issue talked about in the media, by the way I hear politicians uh, promoting, uh, you know, excitingly waiting and anticipating uh, the approval of vaccines for five to 11 year olds and sort of like, we're going to be ready to go, we're going to roll it out. Uh, you know, it, it, it seems like the, the, the question is settled and they're going to go ahead and do it. But, you know, again, like to your point, like why, why, why would we why would we try to uh, vaccinate kids when we know that, you know, in very, very small, rare circumstances, there are negative side effects? So you're, whereas when it comes to COVID, there there aren't really any. I mean, uh, you pointed out to me that, uh, you know, I had in my column that there were 1,700 hospitalizations in that age group below 20. And uh, you pointed out in your reporting um, that, that most of those cases were not kids who were hospitalized because of COVID, but rather uh, kids that had to go to the hospital for another reason. While they were there, they got tested and they had contracted COVID perhaps even in the hospital. I don't know. Uh, but but, but it, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense uh, why, why we would even vaccinate this group uh, in, in the first place. What do, what do you think about that? Yeah, one of the things that I've talked about in a few True North videos is what frustrates me is the media amplification game and the news that gets amplified and then the news that that, that atrophies, that doesn't catch on and get picked up by all of their news outlets. And I thought that Public Health Agency of Canada report on nosocomial pediatric infections is, is the term, is the focus of the report, was very interesting because it looked at, at uh, all the cases. It took numbers from hospitals all across the country and found that, okay, these are the kids hospitalized with COVID, but then they said, what is the cause of admission? Why were they hospitalized in the first place? And only 37% of them were actually hospitalized because they were suffering from COVID-19 symptoms or you know what have you, uh, and the rest were incidental findings. So of course, right now you need to get tested for COVID whenever you go to hospital. Uh, so these kids went in for say a broken arm and then they just tested positive for asymptomatic COVID and that was included, is included in our national statistics for a kid being hospitalized with COVID. So you always have to take the numbers out there and cut it at least in half. And that's the that's the factual data that public health is putting out there. Uh, and that's also anecdotally what, what pediatric uh, hospital physicians have told me. So that is the established fact. And yet I, I'm sure if I were to go on certain news outlets, which haven't been discussed this much, if I were to go on you know, CBC, uh, national television and bring this up, there'd probably be people tweeting in or get this guy off the air, misinformation and so forth. They, it's, it's data. It's public data. They wrote a report on it. Right. It's the science as well, but it's not the science that they like. And so they try to beat you over the head with it. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for bringing some common sense. I wish that there were more journalists out in Canada like you that were willing to talk about these, uh, you know, inconvenient findings and sometimes challenge uh, the narrative. It's great to have you on the show. Well, same to you. Thanks, Candice. All right. Thanks so much for watching. I'm Candice Malcolm, and this is The Candice Malcolm Show.